Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of Seaweed Brain. Today, we have a very special guest. It's Lori Emily. Um, so stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Yay! (laughs) Hi, Lori. (laughs) Hi. Thank you so much for being here. We have a bio that I believe we copied and pasted from your website. So we're going to read that out loud right now, (laughs) just just to give you the, the welcome and the fanfare that you deserve. Lori M. Lee is the author of Speculative Novels and Short Stories. Her books include Pahua and the Soul Stealer, Forest of Souls, and the sequel Broken Web, and more. She's also the contributor to anthologies, A Thousand Beginnings and Endings, and Color Outside the Lines. She considers herself a unicorn fan, enjoys marathoning TV shows, and loves to write about magic, manipulation, and family. Wow, that was so great! (laughs) You can tell when somebody has a really great established career because their bios are just so so well written so ready to be read out loud (laughs) on a podcast it took me a decade to get there so (laughs) is there anything you want to add to your bio that wasn't just read out loud for the people I feel like that covered it the most important part was the unicorn that is amazing although (laughs) are there is there a cameo from a unicorn in Pahua there's not. Alas, I, I don't think there are any unicorn mythologies in the Hmong culture. Although there are unicorn-like figures in Asian um, mythology in general, although those types of unicorns are more like, um, more stag-like with like the curved horn versus, you know, the golden spiral that you see in like Western mythology. That's so cool. We already learned something from you. (laughs) Quick statement for our listeners here. We're going to avoid spoiling anything plot wise. If we do get to a point where we want to talk about something that's like later in the book, we will give a big warning beforehand. I think that there's one moment where we want to talk about something that happens maybe a third of the way in and we'll let you know. Yeah, we'll give serious warning because I know this book truly just came out and maybe not everybody (laughs) has had time to catch up on the RRP content. All right. We would love to begin by just shouting out a bunch of things that we really loved about this book. (laughs) Um, Just to give people some context, if you you haven't read Pahua yet, Pahua in The Soul Sealer is a book about a young girl, Pahua, who goes on a quest to save her brother's soul after it gets stolen and he falls ill in the real world. With the help of a powerful shaman who she becomes friends with and her best friend who is a spirit cat no one else can see, they travel to the spirit world, fight some monsters, ride some spirit horses in order to save her brother's soul. It's a story about bravery and partnership and overcoming your imposter syndrome and re-engaging with your heritage. Not to mention it's super funny and there's a ton of beautiful, beautiful scenes within this spirit world. I can I guess I can start with my my bullet points and then Carter you can you can talk in there. Um, oh boy, okay. <laughs> yes, prepare to receive um, <laughs> positive energy. Um, <laughs> I really really enjoyed reading this book. 
But I think my favorite part about Pahua was the arc of Pahua learning that you don't have to be ashamed of the work that you have to do to re-engage with your heritage and to re-engage with your culture when you're part of diaspora from anywhere. And I would imagine diaspora, especially from a place, if your family, you come from a family of refugees, you have to do a lot of work on your own. So it was beautiful for me to see a young girl get over her shame that she doesn't know a lot of things and to just learn them. Super beautiful. <laughs> the partnership between Pahua and one of the other main characters, Zhang, is that yes, proper that pronunciation? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Pahua and Zhang is so delightful. Female friendship. I texted Carter and I was like, Carter, you're going to love Zhang. I was like, <laughs> I was like um, Zhang is an icon. Yeah, I would first of all like to second the things that Erica said, particularly about the relationship that this book has to sort of these like heftier ideas about heritage and diaspora and reconnection. I enjoyed a lot. I wanted to give special shout outs to specifically Pahua's main outfit really uh, made me <laughs> so excited to see this description of somebody wearing the galaxy print leggings, the mm -hmm. galaxy print leggings mm -hmm. that were such a fixture of my own middle school experience. I really felt <laughs> so Have seen Have you seen the artwork that. posted on Reed Riordan with a Pahua because she's wearing the galaxy print leggings and it's like perfect. <laughs> I will be posting, I will re be reposting that art from Reed Riordan to honor it. Yeah, I appreciated that a lot. I really, I, I was like a little confused, honestly, when I was reading forward. Like, why is he talking so much about the ending? Like, I'm a little confused. But then when I actually read the author's note, I was so moved. It really did recontextualize the book so well for me. It was so gorgeous. Um, I actually, okay, as much as I love Zhang, Zhang was not my favorite character. My favorite character was me. Was me. Yeah, was me. <laughs> I saw that in the notes. <laughs> He's my Just favorite too. So. The MVP. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> me was serving like, Next in the line of iconic cat sidekicks, like <laughs> truly just like fulfilling that that role, that excellent, like taking that trope and just building on it from like, I was getting so <laughs> much Salem energy from the Sabrina the Teenage Witch series. Oh um, <laughs> That's such a great comparison. So Salem and also Black Cat and Hocus Pocus, who was actually the human boy. Um, <laughs> that, that, was, that was my strongest, my strongest connection to me's character. Let's let's dive into the questions. Let's yeah. <laughs> get into the part. The first thing we wanted to ask you about was just your your journey into writing. You know, like how did you come into this field? But then also, how did you come to join RP, particularly as like an established author with all of these works that you've already um, published? So I've always known that I wanted to write. Um, books were transportive and they were magical and I didn't want to just inhabit these worlds. I wanted to create them. Um, I would mimic everything that I was reading from, um, from like retelling Greek mythologies because I was really, really into Greek mythology as a kid. Mm -hmm. So it only made sense that I loved Percy Jackson later on in life. Um, <laughs> um, and then actually one of my earliest stories, I retold uh, Persephone in a nice. short, short like picture book and I don't actually remember even what it was about only that it was a Persephone retelling and that would be awesome if I could ever find that again um but I was mimicking you know R.L. Stein and um Tolkien and and then I went through a historical romance phase so I was mimicking that as well absolutely so I, yeah I went through all these genres at one point because I wanted to be able to do what these authors were doing um I actually sort of fell out of writing for quite a few years in middle school and into high school until 
I started this story with one of my friends where we would write, I would write a little bit in, in a notebook and then I'd pass to her in between classes and she'd write a little bit in the notebook. And like, this was before texting, as you could probably tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so gosh. We did the notebook thing. And then that was really fun. But once I got into college, I didn't write again for like a couple of years until I discovered fan fiction. Um, <gasps> oh <laughs> so, my God. Yeah. I wrote That's fan awesome. fiction for years and in all honesty, Fan fiction taught me more about writing than any of my college courses did. I majored in creative writing, mm -hmm. but like I learned more about character and pacing and stakes and craft through these other fanfic writers. Fan fiction taught me that it is all about the character. You have to care about the character in order to stick with the story because we read fan fiction primarily because I love the characters. So the characters are what makes the story so powerful. And that, and that translates to original fiction. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so how did I come to Rick Riordan Presents? When I first saw it was announced that it would be a thing, starting with Arusha, I thought, oh my gosh, I would love to write for that imprint. It would be perfect. But I had never written in middle grade before. Um, I'd always wanted to write in middle grade but I just didn't think I had the voice for it. I feel like my writing voice naturally skews to upper YA. So I followed the imprint and I read all the books and every time another book was announced, I think, gosh, it'd be so cool to publish with that. <laughs> but it was what I imagined was probably like a pipe dream, mm -hmm. like something you think would be super cool, but would never like actually happen. Like me publishing with Rick Red Presents, ha, you know? <laughs> um, and quick aside to say, like, learn from me and never self-reject yourself. If I had listened, if I had listened to that voice inside me saying, don't even bother telling your agent that you want to publish with Rick Ryden Presents because it'll never happen. Why try when you're just going to be rejected? Um, if I had listened to those doubts, I might not be here talking with you guys right now. Yeah. But fortunately, yeah, I did tell my agent and she was super cool about it. And we put together a proposal and they ended up loving it. Happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yes and now we're here and now you're on our podcast and yeah. <laughs> that is amazing. truly the culmination yeah truly guesting <laughs> on cv great i really want to say that out <laughs> sitting in your closet um and recording a podcast <laughs> that since you mentioned the middle grade thing what was it like trying to write for a slightly younger audience than like you said that you were sort of used to and what your other works are in and did you like model that voice off of the other RRP books or I felt like there were a lot of lessons in this book, but doing it without ever feeling like you're talking down to the reader, which this book never does. So I'm glad um, <laughs> I'm glad that my first attempt was a success. You know, um, I feel like that's not something a lot of authors can say. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. But like what really worked for me for getting my head into the middle grade space was that as I was researching the book and as I was outlining the book, I listened to nothing but middle grade audiobooks for like two months straight, <laughs> like every wow. single day. And that I just needed to get my head out of the YA voice and into mm. the middle grade voice. And literally I wasn't sure, voice. literally, yes, the <laughs> voice. Um, and I guess I kind of modeled the voice after, I wouldn't say it was the other Rick Red Presents books. It was probably more like, the Trials of Apollo books to be honest. Nice. <laughs> because I listened nice. to those ones a couple of times and the voice of just Lester Papadopoulos is so <laughs> funny. It's so <laughs> funny. So I wanted that type of like humor, um, that type of like silliness. Yeah. And I really, I really wanted to em embrace that silliness in the book, which, you know, my YA doesn't really allow me to do. 
Right. So, and I don't want this to sound flippant because I don't mean it that way, but I don't set out to like implement a moral when I'm, I'm writing like anything. Yeah. I, I set out to tell a story, typically just one specific character story, and it isn't until I'm nearing the end of the writing process that I even discover what the themes of the story are. Yeah. Um, then I can lean into those themes in the revision process. But if in the end some greater moral lesson emerges, emerges then that is great. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not to say I don't go into a book without intending to challenge certain things, because I do. Um, like Pahoa deals with microaggressions at school because of how she looks and what she eats. And, and, and those kids are definitely portrayed as being in the wrong. But I mm. don't begin those kinds of scenes with the intention of teaching a lesson. I just write what's happening to a person and how that person feels about it. Because I think anything that feels like a lesson ends up distancing the emotional impact. And then Absolutely. there's no, yeah, and then there's no connection to what's on the page. And then the intent to teach has failed. Right. Because the intent is to tell the story, then what I'm able to do as a reader is to interpret the story how I want to. And right, all of those things exactly. just end up being there, then you get to pull them out as opposed to being like, I am being lectured at right now. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> right. And yeah. like, if my readers are anything like I was as a, as a kid, I the last thing I wanted was to be like lectured at in a book. <laughs> I feel like that's exactly what Gracie Kim said too when we talked to her. She was like, I didn't set out to say any of these things, but then when I was done with it, I was like, whoa, that was like a journal entry. <laughs> yes, I did that I, unintentionally with one of my other books where I just unintentionally gave like um, the main character just a lot of the insecurities and fears and um, stuff that I had as a kid, as a teenager. And so like it unintentionally became like the kind of book that I would have loved as a kid. So with Bahua, I was much more deliberate about it. I was much more deliberate in giving Pahoa those fears and insecurities. Right. This is sort of related. When we were thinking about like the ways in which this book is conceived of and particularly marketed, given that like the RP imprint has like a, like a really well-established like idea among like readers about like what it is and the types of stories that it tells. With that context, like how do you see this book slotting into or potentially not slotting into ideas of fantasy, speculative fiction, or I guess on the other end, Asian American or ethnic literatures. What is the relationship you feel that this book has and like should have with these types of genre labels and groupings? I think genres and labels are really good for categorizing a book in a bookstore and like mm -hmm. maybe, you know, deciding what sort of book you want to write. But outside of that, um, I mean, I would simply just call the book a contemporary fantasy and call it a day, you know? Um, if you want to get into the gritty details, Hmong inspired contemporary fantasy. But Here's the thing. I saw a review for Pahoa and the Soul Stealer very early on. It kind of bothered me. Mm. Um, like, I don't go looking for reviews. I don't want to say that. It's just that the right. book had, it was not out yet. It was on NetGalley. And I couldn't resist going to look at what very early reviews were saying. Because, I mean, you know, this is my first book, right? I was very curious. Um, and they were all very positive. It's just one thing that a review said um, that, I also want to specify that I'm a thousand percent okay with anyone not liking the book. Okay, I want to say that. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. we're all individuals. That's a good thing. Um, but what bothered me was that they said Pahul wasn't American. And I was so puzzled by this. Oh, my. Because nowhere in the book did I say she wasn't American. Pahul was born and raised in Wisconsin. She is American. But because she's Hmong, this reader didn't see that as American. So to tie this back to your question, I think it's important to not force books by marginalized authors into these niche categories that aren't considered mainstream. Because then, I don't know, maybe the collective consciousness can shift to, to stop othering characters and books 
about cultures that aren't familiar. Absolutely. That was so articulate. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Working in a bookstore now for a few months. I talk about that every day with my coworkers. If we get a book, where do we put it on the shelf? Literally, like, does it go in the 8 to 10 or the 10 to 12 or like the YA? And those are all separate shelves and every day we're like we need to just take down these shelves they don't make any sense like but at the same time when a family walks in with their kid and they're trying to look for something to like pluck out it's like oh like where do you send them so it's a whole it's a whole very interesting conversation yeah like just genres are like a thing and then you separate it even more by like you know age group like even a decade ago i think books with an asian character on it books with a black character on it would go into these niche categories on bookshelves that no one would be able to find. And so they would not do well. And so it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. When I was reading the book, I had to really stop and reflect that like the rela- the way that it's set up as being so focused on the relationship between Pahua and Zhang felt different to me. And I was like, I don't know, like it's 2021, like surely I've experienced a lot of stories like this. And then I had to take inventory and realize that maybe I had not. Actually, not that I had never read a female friendship before, but like the <laughs> idea that this... <laughs> middle grade book is placing the emphasis so squarely on these two people and that it's not like for most of the book it's kind of just the two of them and also like me being around but like (laughs) yes no not to not to degrade the cat the cat's so excellent but like um (laughs) but I was wondering if you had reflections on this choice as something that still feels kind of unique and like if there were conversations you had in the process of publishing or developing the story because of the way that it centers so squarely these two girls developing a friendship i feel like this answer is going to be so much more involved than you are expecting please we love that um okay so the monk culture is extremely patriarchal and I, that's something I wanted to subvert without, like, challenging it directly on the page. I mean, Hmong culture is patriarchal, but that can be said of, like, most world cultures, you know, like, historically. So it's not unique in that way. And you can see hints of this, actually, in, in the book, like, in the way that Pahoa's mother is treated after her husband leaves her. Like, a divorced woman in the Hmong culture is extremely yeah. looked down on. And she was a bit ostracized, so she moved her family away from all that. I can't think of a single Hmong folktale where it's a woman who is definitively the hero. The folktales that star the only recurring female figure, which is Mingo Zhupa, always portray her as this docile, subservient wife who cooks and cleans and clears the rice fields, all without a single complaint, and then who tearfully gives in when this other wicked woman comes in and steals her husband, which is, of course, the fault of the other woman and not the faithless husband. And the Punzong, which are the demons in the books, they're almost always portrayed as vengeful women. Um, mm. So women are either victims or they're idealized and flawless wives or they're evil. So when I decided to write this book based on Hmong culture, there was no doubt in my mind that the lead was going to be a girl. And all of the most prominent characters in the book are women. And of course, you know, Zhang is a girl too. Except for the villain and me, but he's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and then I decided to make Ningong Shufa a trickster goddess because it delighted me to think of her that way. She's not actually, but, you know, that's how I wanted to portray her. And so with Pahua and Zhang, okay, actually, an interesting fact, which I feel goes back to what I was saying, is that the summary of the book, when that first came out, the summary says that Pahua gets help from a, sh- a shaman warrior. It mm-hmm. doesn't mention gender. 
it was very interesting for me to see people be excited about this and automatically assume that that shaman warrior was a boy. Every single person Every time, who talked yeah. about it, they assumed it was a boy. So, you know, making Zhang a girl was like a conscious choice. I'm like, she's going to be a girl. The warriors in this book are going to be a girl. They're going to have the adventure. They're going to have the sword. They're going to have, you know, the magic. Yeah. <laughs> and not only are they both women, they're both kind of like, angry women which i just <laughs> that is really it hits so hard especially zhang she's super prickly she you know has this hard exterior that we you know we break through a little bit as the book goes on in a beautiful way of showing that that emotional bond and that partnership between the two of them but it's such a nice slow burn of a friendship and it's i think it's so, so amazingly well written that these two characters sort of like they spar, but I want to hear them spar. And like sometimes when you put two <laughs> characters who like maybe one character doesn't like each other, or they're kind of prickly together, then you're like, oh, I don't want to read this thing where these two characters are like angry. But their anger is so delicious and like fueled <laughs> by their families and everything that they're going through. How old is Zhang? Like she's the same age. Same 11, age, yeah. 12, eleven, yeah. twelve. Like I was freaking mad when I was eleven or twelve. <laughs> <laughs> It was so yeah. it was so great to see that. I do enjoy like writing friendships between girls though that are just like complex and like yeah. um I did that in Force of Souls too because Force of Souls does focus on a female friendship. But I wanted, you know, these two to like butt heads a little bit. There's friction, you know, there's there's a little bit of envy, their loyalties are a little bit challenged, but what makes them work and what makes their friendship so powerful is that they choose each each other in spite yeah. of all these. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> okay, can we pivot into the world building? Because this is a question that like, Carter wrote that I'm really excited about. Like, it is super cool that Pahu's powers are trying to avoid being too spoilery. Pahu's powers are still very undefined by the end of the book. There is there's not a limit to like what we think she can do yet. And obviously, when it comes to adapting mythologies or folklore into world building you decide like what of this am I going to spice up with my own personal take and what of this am I going to like take from the larger canon um so how did you go about that process of like world building the magic system that is within this to put it plainly I just took what I thought was cool <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> everything that the shaman wars like Zhang can do are things that I pulled from the folk tales and from various right. essays that I read about shamanism and um, playing the thing which is the instrument that Zhang plays very early on um and some storytellers have said that once upon a time shamans were able to transmute objects and perform magical spells and fly and battle spirits some could read minds you know and call the elements but legend says that because these skills led to power struggles between shamans and like killing each other and as they do the masters who taught their students eventually stopped sharing the secrets of these powers so those particular arts were lost and I thought that was very cool. So I really just built on the foundation that was already there. And that's kind of how I handled the world building in general. A lot of what I included was just inspired by or pulled directly from the stories that I read in the research. And it was really literally just, this is really cool. I'm going to put it in the book. <laughs> yeah, this is a terrible pivot. But speaking of things that are really cool and I want to put in the book, <laughs> you mentioned earlier, like reading a lot of Tolkien. And there is a special shout out to 
J.R.R. Tolkien in a piece of clothing <laughs> that yeah. Wahua wears that helps her feel confident <sighs> at one point. And there's also so many shout outs to things within Disney and like other cultural, like pop culture things that I took a little pencil and like underlined all the many fun <laughs> call outs. At any point, did you have to be like, what I can and cannot reference within this book like <laughs> you know I was a little worried that there were some things I couldn't reference like <laughs> Kylo Ren <laughs> so, like, when I wrote him I was like they might not let me do this but no one brought it up so I was like cool <laughs> that's okay yeah. um something that I really enjoyed was like when I got the notes back from Rick and he had said that when he read the part about the demon wearing a t-shirt that said, I'd rather be a satyr, he laughed out loud. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. But it also, I like, what, what point does Rick give notes in this process? Because Rick's not like the editor, I assume, you know? There's a whole other RRP team, but obviously his name's on it, and I know that he gives feedback. So when does that connection happen face to face that happens after i've done developmental edits for my editor who is stephanie lordy and who's the editor of most of the regret and presents authors um so i did a couple versions revisions with her and then it was ready to go to rick and he read it like so fast i don't know how he does everything that he does <laughs> like he it's does not... so much and he was so fast with getting notes back um, and he, he was so great about picking out things that needed more explanation. So I had to layer in some more of like, you know, that kind of stuff. For example, he pointed out, I wasn't sure he understood why that when Matt's soul was stolen, why Matt was able to continue the whole rest of the day without like, you know, dropping dead, essentially. Because oh, <laughs> uh -huh. your soul's not there. He's still walking around. <laughs> and that didn't occur to me because that's just a thing in the Hmong culture. Like, you know, when when our soul gets stolen, when it gets lost, we're able to just go around and you, then you fall sick and then, oh, that's when you realize something's wrong, you know? So, like, it didn't occur to me that that needed to be explained, which is, <laughs> in hindsight, ah. um, But anyway, yeah, so he, he got those notes back and I was able to revise it and then he, like, you know, wrote the, the intro and when I saw that, I was just like, oh my god, rainbows over my head for the entire rest of the day <laughs> but yeah and then after that it goes to copy edit okay cool yeah that's super cool that's very enlightening um i also have to ask do you guys have like a group chat with all of the rrp authors <laughs> you guys is there a group we chat somewhere don't but gosh we should um, <laughs> I, do email a, chain. I do have a group chat with a couple of them and like nice. you know we we talk and they're really awesome and all of them are super like you know welcoming and warm and i've definitely talked them you know individually but you should absolutely have a group yeah, chat, have a group chat. <laughs> <laughs> i also feel like pahua is like like the, this book is sort of the first book of like phase two of RRP. I don't know, like, because Cursed Carnival came out, and I feel like there's a little bit of a break between Last Fallen Star and this book, and now we're in, like, phase two. We're really hitting the ground. Like, it's getting... <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. Carter, do you want to ask the, this question about, like, language? and? Yeah, um, this is something that we talked with Gracie Kim about, too, and this is something that I'm just generally very curious about, and particularly in the context of this book, wanted to ask how you approached explanatory commas and the use of like the Hmong language in this book. I don't know if there are any little stories or discussions that you think would be interesting for people to hear about or would shed more light on like the way that you are trying to share these like traditional cultural elements. So for the Hmong language, I'm not fluent in Hmong. So I used it sparingly and what I wasn't sure, I checked with my 
family who are much more fluent than I am. <laughs> but there were definitely words that you simply cannot translate. Like the bunzong are demons, but they're very specific types of demons. And the, the house spirits or like dafei, which is the spirit realm and like or the names of the gods, like you can't translate those. And I was concerned about the fact that the Hmong language is a tonal language. Like there's the glossary at the end, but that doesn't really explain how you can pronounce them because they have to be said with a certain tone or else the, the meaning is completely lost. Like a fun example that I like to do <laughs> is like <laughs> the word J means fish. J means sharp. J means salt, you know? J <laughs> means house. Literally, you just shift the tone and a little bit of how you pronounce it and it's a completely different word. So the glossary is great for definitions, not great for how to pronounce words. <laughs> oh, here's a funny story. <laughs> okay, so um, there's a horse in the book. His name is Shona. It translates into the sound of rain. I had written it wrong. I had written it shona instead of shona. Shona is the sound of rodents. Oh no! <laughs> it is not the sound of rain. It's the sound of rodents. Oh, and it, luckily, I caught this, you know, in the revision process. Otherwise, that would have gone to print and his name would have been the sound of rodents. So. <laughs> I loved that horse. I thought that that horse was going to really join the ranks of iconic rider diverse <laughs> horses, like joining Blackjack and and Hippocampus, Rainbow, and all of the other incredible that horse is creatures. A high honor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think now is the time to ask our question that deals with a plot point, but it comes partway through the book. So if you want to skip ahead a few minutes, you can go ahead and do so now. Probably my favorite part of this book is how it <laughs> deals with reincarnation and the fact that Pahua finds out that she is a reincarnation or her soul is reincarnated from the most famous shaman warrior from before and that just adds into her imposter syndrome that she already had. And I was really struck when I was reading that by kind of like Carter said, I had to take inventory and be like, how many times have I really read a story or like watched a piece of media that actually dealt with when a main character is reincarnated? What is that like? And that was just like, that's insane that that's such a big part of so many cultural mythologies from around the world. And it's like really, in my experience, there aren't a lot of stories that really deal with like, what does that mean for me mentally that I am reincarnated from someone? And have I gotten traits from them? And what does it mean about how I'm going to live my life and my fate versus free will and all of that? And so it was really cool to read that as part of the plot and just made me so grateful for RRP as a collection that brings in, you know, <laughs> that opens the door to give space to tell all of these things that we are lacking in the storytelling landscape. But our question, I guess, is like, what, how did you see that relationship between Pahua and she? I'm yeah. certainly not saying the tones correctly. <laughs> as we I actually learned. am not sure about the tones for his name either. Great. I suppose him she. Um, I thought it would be really funny and also, you know, again, challenging the patriarchal nature of the culture to have one of like the most well-known mythological heroes in the Hmong culture be reincarnated as this girl. This right. Kid who is a little awkward, a little introverted. She's like, you know, not really sure of herself. And I thought that would be hilarious. <laughs> 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 um, 
I'm also just absolutely fascinated by history and I feel certain that if I wasn't a writer I would have become a historian of some sort because I just love learning about cultures that came before and how things came to be. I like understanding the how and the why of things which sounds very like clinical I guess scientific part of me I guess. <laughs> so Pahoa learning who she is it explains a lot of why she is the way she is but Almost at once, everyone has all these expectations and they're constantly judging her based on a whole different scale. Um, and so she sort of has to work through that and figure out, you know, and her, her emotional and her um, character journey in the story is figuring out, you know, that all these expectations, they, they aren't her expectations and they, she can't judge herself based on like a completely different person who she might have been once, mm -hmm. but, you know, obviously isn't. And then in the second book, which I don't want to say too much, but there are some discoveries that Pahoa makes about she and so i wanted to challenge like our desire to romanticize the past and figures from the past and the ways yes. in which the ways in which we rewrite history to suit whatever narrative we're trying to to push you know and like the way we are so eager to brush over any negative things they might have done because they were a quote-unquote hero you know yes so, yeah. No, even Absolutely. in this book, like, I really had to pause for, I guess this is a spoiler a little bit further into the book. <laughs> like, maybe two-thirds of the way in. There's a moment where Pahua uses, I'll speak of this day, there's a moment where Pahua uses her powers in a way that is supposed to be, like, reminiscent of, like, the tradition of Shi, right? Like, she's trying to mm -hmm. unlock some of the powers that he used in his lifetime. And in doing so, she's like, wait, that, like, felt really bad. Like, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. And that moment really struck me as like such a powerful way of getting into the thing that you were just describing of being like, wow, like, do, do you see like this relationship between them as a way of explicitly, implicitly trying to like critique these like old ideas or to say like this mythology is like really powerful and like something for us to understand, but also like something for us to like, not just like try and replicate um, wholesale. <laughs> was that wholesale. a question at the end? I think that was a question. <laughs> question mark. <laughs> I think it's important to like um, know to learn history and cultures as they were and not as we want them to be like mm. um, because like the Hmong culture I love our culture and I love our mythologies and histories and even growing up as a kid or, or I listened to Dandang our Hmong oral folk tales you know and all throughout my entire life those were the most powerful part of our mythology and our culture for me so right. that's what I really wanted to focus on in the book but I also really really just hated like a lot of our the aspects of our culture too, like particularly the patriarchal part of it. Like there were a lot of things that I simply could not connect to. I guess with Pahua and she, you know, like she is sort of, she, she's, those are her roots, but also she has to learn how to be her own person and like move to move, to move out of that, out of the shadow of like his, what's the word I'm looking for? The monument that was built to him, I guess. Yeah. Oh, what a, yeah. <laughs> why this genre is just so wonderful. And I don't mean like middle grade genre, but all stories that are so popular right now that re-engage with myth and retell myth or modernize them or just so healing and satisfying because there's a reason we love these stories and why they're so important to us. But there's always things that are going to bother us because they're from a different time. And rather than placing, you know, anger and judgment onto that time we can just use our present time to bring them up to date and how we want them and it's so rewarding <laughs> and i'm so grateful to authors such as you and all the other amazing authors <laughs> that are writing these kinds of books right now for giving us that satisfying like oh yeah this is how it should be do you feel that there's anything that gets missed in the way that people discuss this book if they're not thinking specifically about like the Hmong people as like you know like a culturally specific group of people 
as opposed to when people think about this book as like a work of diversity literature, ethnic literature, even if they were to say like Asian American literature, what might get lost or like if there's anything that felt special to you in your experience of writing this book because of those like strong cultural ties. You know, when I wrote the book and when I knew it would be published, it felt like a huge responsibility being one of the first Hmong children's book authors to write this kind of book. And while I think it would be immensely cool, you know, if the Hmong became a more widely known minority, I really only hoped that it might be something for Hmong kids to point to and feel represented, you know. And I am super honored that my book is, I think, the first middle grade book to feature Hmong characters and Hmong culture. But to be honest, I think Sunisa Lee did a whole lot more in terms of bringing Hmong into the spotlight. <laughs> um, so that was very cool. But <laughs> What a great year it's been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have like a fun final question for you. Obviously, like so many of the RRP properties have been like optioned into adaptations um, and we're all super excited about the Disney Plus show. So if there was a, a medium, like a visual media that Pahua would be adapted into, what would be like your like your dream adaptation? <laughs> Definitely animated yes. um, film an animated film or a tv series would be cool too but like yeah animation would be amazing i mean i have to like the, the rights are optioned and it's not animated but i was like if it was if it was like ideal ideally i would absolutely love an animated version simply because um i get a lot of comparisons like unintentionally comparisons to like spirited way and studio ghibli like the, right. the nature of the spirits in the book yeah and like just the way that they would be animated would be super duper cool and i feel like animation gives you the opportunity to do things that live action just doesn't mm. like animation allows you to like really pull out the scope on world building and really like play up like the different character creations versus the difficulty of doing that in the live action. There's so many sweeping wow. landscapes that are <laughs> painted in this book. Like whenever we're traveling through the spirit world, there's just so many beautiful, is it, can you say visually striking when you're reading a book? I, sir, I, I think it applies. Yes, like the, absolutely. Visually yes. striking things that I was like this, like I would pay so much money to see an animated film of <laughs> like, I think especially when we got to the tree of souls, I was like, picturing the tree in the like spirit swamp in avatar the last airbender specifically this giant <laughs> thing with these roots oh, that yes, extend out yes. for an entire forest anyway it was very exciting <laughs> <laughs> well that's really cool congratulations on whatever it ends up being like that's so cool <laughs> well while we have you here is there anything else that you would like to to say about your book or if there's anything that you would like to promote that you're working on or any anything you would like to say to the people <laughs> <laughs> um well my next book out i think will be the last book in my shaman born trilogy so it's gonna be next year Ooh. and the first two books are already out so if you like ya fantasy that's just a little bit darker than my middle grade then check out forest of souls and broken web Woohoo! wherever books are sold <laughs> wherever books are sold yes <laughs> well thank you so much Lori, for being here we will link all of the proper links to get all of Lori's books and all of the fun read riot and things you can engage with after you've read pahua and that's all for now thanks guys <laughs> thank you 